Well, welcome back to the Zeitcast, everybody. What an honor today that I get to have one of my heroes here, Lisa Sharon Harper. And I, I say this to people all the time. I really believe, well, first of all, she's the author of uh, Very Good Gospel and the founder and president of Freedom Road, which I definitely want to talk more about. But I tell people this all the time, uh, Lisa, behind your back, I truly believe one of the most important voices in the church. And I just think all the things you bring together in terms of theology, kind of sociological critique, the kind of robust spirituality. I mean, like, I just, uh, whenever anything's going on in the world, like, uh, you're the person whose hot take I actually want. Like, I want Lisa's take on pretty much anything. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, so, therefore, I have a lot of questions. But uh, okay. thank you so much for taking the time to, to hang out. We're at the Red Letter Revival, by the way, I should mention. Woohoo, yeah. So that's been exciting, <laughs> where Lisa is, is speaking. So, but it, but it means so much for you to take some time. Well, I'm actually really, really excited to be here talking to you and also with your audience. You guys, thank you so much for listening in. We really appreciate that. And, um, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of your work as well. And the work you're doing, particularly in Oklahoma, mm. it's necessary. So mm. thank you for that. Well, thank you for the encouragement. I just, mm -hmm. um, I really, uh, not to jump into the deep end too, well, maybe this would be a good place to to wade in before I really dive in uh -huh. the very when I started this this is this podcast is fairly new this yeah. is kind of the new version about six weeks old and oh, okay. um, cool. uh, the very first episode of the Zeitcast I talked about God at the intersections and one of the podcasts kind of exists at these intersections mm -hmm. and one of the things I, I think is so interesting about your life and journey is I see you as a person who lives at a lot of intersections <laughs> and I, I would love to hear yeah. you just kind of speak to that and some of the different intersections that you live at theologically, culturally, whatever direction you want to go with that. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I, I was interviewed, I don't know, earlier this year by a journalist who was doing research on, you know, how the church, particularly the evangelical church, who are the people in the evangelical church who are helping to move the church forward into justice in various issues? Mm. And he was kind of he was kind of marveling, Lisa, you're kind of everywhere. Like you're in all these things. And I don't think of it that way. I've literally simply been somebody who is trying to get my friends and my people to, to get closer to God in this way. That's mm. really what it's been about. And mm. so, I mean, for me, though, the crisis came for me when I began to realize that I am not, I, um, I, I don't come from a lineage of faith uh, in my recent history, in terms of when I became an evangelical Christian, that lineage of faith in, my, in that stream of the evangelical church, at least in the late, to, late 20th century, did not actually align with justice. They didn't yeah. understand it. They did begin to dabble into racial reconciliation in the 1990s. And so that's mm. how I entered into the conversation, was mm. through that stream. Interesting. But they ran into, uh, what do you call it, like a roadblock in the early 2000s because our, our, communi our communities and churches began to ask the question, how is race connected to the gospel, mm -hmm. right? Like, this is feeling heavy. This is feeling like it's too much for us to drag. Can we, can we let this go? It feels like it might be Discipleship 401, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we don't need this yet, right? But, but I had been told and I had an intuition and along with, I mean, a cadre of people who, who believed that it's actually integral to the gospel, but it hadn't been articulated, not, not clearly yet. So we embarked on a journey, um, a journey toward understanding the relationship between racial reconciliation and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I took a pilgrimage, and that pilgrimage was 2003, 
and it was across the American South, two weeks on the Cherokee Trail of Tears, mm. and then two weeks in the African experience from slavery to civil rights. Mm. And the whole time we were just asking, what does the gospel have to say to this? Mm. And I got to the end of that journey, a journey that intricately interwove uh, or intersected rather with my own family's story. Mm. And I was honestly dumbstruck. And I share this story a lot because it is for me, it's like a Genesis story of my, yeah. you know, aha moment. But I, I came to the end of that journey and I realized if I were to share to my third great grandmother, Leah Ballard, who was the first, the last enslaved adult in our family, um, if I were to go and share with her the four spiritual laws, mm. you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was, and by the way, she was a breeder. She would be believed she was one of those people who was her job on the plantation that she didn't get paid for was to breed money for her master. Wow. Ooh. That was her job. Ooh. That's what we believe. And, um, and so if I were to go walk, you know, knock on her door after the fifth time she got raped that day and say, um, great, great, great grandma Leah, I have good news for you. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Mm. How would she respond? But mm. you are sinful and therefore separated from God. Mm. How would she respond? But, but Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. Mm. Um, how would she respond? But all you need to do is pray this little prayer at the back of the gold booklet. Mm. And you get to go to heaven. Would that news make her jump and shout? That was the question. Mm. And I was rocked to my soul when I realized the answer is no. Mm. And like, you know, as an evangelical, the gospel is at the, at the heart, at the center yes. of your whole world. Yes. Like you don't have a world without the good news of Jesus. Yeah. What is it without Jesus? Yeah. What? What what is it all about? So when that all crumbled at the end of that summer, I literally went into a year of depression. Mm. I mean, I literally did. I wasn't diagnosed because mm-hmm. I didn't go to a therapist. I did go to a therapist, but she didn't diagnose me with anything. We just talked for a long time. Mm. But I realized later when I realized the symptoms of it, no, I was I was clinically depressed. Wow. And the reason for that is because depression comes on when your bottom is taken out and yeah. you don't have control over it. Yeah. So that really led me. It catalyzed about 16 years now mm. of wrestling with this biblical concept of shalom. Mm. Because shalom is the integration point of racial reconciliation or justice in general mm. and the good news of Jesus Christ. Mm. So I'd say that for me, the most significant thing that ever happened in my life besides actually meeting Jesus was going on that pilgrimage. Wow. And it began to put things together. So I've been I've been swimming in the book of Genesis now for 16 years. Mm. And it was Genesis in particular that you Genesis wow. in particular okay. is where it began. And in particular Genesis one yeah. and two. Because that's before the fall. Yeah. It shows us the way God intended it to be. The mm. way that it shows us it shows us the truth that we need to remember, mm. remember, bring back together. Mm-hmm. And that truth is, its for me, it's um, anybody who's heard my talk in the last couple of years knows what I'm going to say, but that truth is encapsulated in four words, you know, and the first of those four words actually comes at the end of Genesis 1, where God says, the, the, the scripture says that um, all 
or God looked around and saw that all that God had made was very good. Mm. And the word good is tov, um, and the word very is me'od. Mm. It's tov me'od. And tov, when it's talking about goodness, it's not just talking about the thing itself. Mm -hmm. The Hebrews didn't understand goodness that way. The Hebrews understood goodness to exist between things. Mm. So goodness, in its essence, is relational. Mm. It's not about perfection, like being perfect. So that that changes your understanding of sin, if you Mm. understand that. Because then you understand God's main concern is not that I am perfect. Mm -hmm. God's main concern is not that anything is perfect. Mm -hmm. God's main concern is that the way that we relate to each other is loving. Yeah. And not just individuals, Mm. but all of the relationships that God created in Genesis 1, the relationship between humanity and God, Mm -hmm. the relationship between humanity and Humanity, men and women, and all genders, Mm -hmm. and the relationship between us and the rest of creation, Mm -hmm. you know, that we would even be able to look at the sea monsters and Mm -hmm. say, which was like the point of the greatest fear for the Hebrews at that time, and look at that and say, all is well. Mm. All is well, Mm. even with the sea monsters in the room. Mm. You know what I mean? And then to look at all of creation, including ourselves, and how we interact with the systems that govern us, mm. and to say, that is good. It's very mm. good. It's it's overwhelmingly good, mm. the relationships between all things and how we serve each other. Mm. Um, so that's the first word. Second word is the word image or salem in Genesis, all in Genesis 1. And that we were made in the image of God. In other words, we all bear inherent dignity. Yes. And the second word is, or third, is rada, which is dominion, which has been sorely misunderstood. But in its basic form, it just means stewardship. It means that you were created to steward the world, all of us. Mm. And what that has done for me, looking at that journey we went on, looking at multiple, many pilgrimages I've gone on since then, looking at the news today, looking at the possibility of impeachment, looking at the reality that we have nations outside of our own trying to infiltrate and overthrow our nation from the inside out, looking at the border and children who have died because of public policy, Mm -hmm. looking at a little six-year-old girl who was literally taken by a police officer and mm. booked for kicking one of her classmates, a black little ch- little girl mm. in, uh, in Florida, looking mm. at all those things and realizing we have crafted a world yeah. that has said, told us a lie, that has told us the only people who have been created to exercise dominion in the world mm. are white men. Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. Lie. Yes. And it's only when we come against that lie, we speak it, we call it out as a lie, and we begin mm. to reform our society according to the truth mm. that we were all created to steward this world. We were mm. all created to be prepared to lead this world. Mm. That and that includes the church, yeah. that we will be able to um, to experience the flourishing that God created us for. Mm. 
And that, I believe, is the good news. Wow. That's the good news. Yeah. And Jesus figures into that good news because Jesus was the king of the kingdom of God. Yes. And in the kingdom of God, shalom is what the kingdom smells mm-hmm. like. Shalom mm-hmm. is what the kingdom requires of its citizens. Mm. And, and Jesus was the king. So mm. I believe if, if I was now going up to my third great-grandmother and I were to say, great-great-grandmom, I have, or great-great-great, I have good news for you. I would tell her the king of the kingdom of God has come Mm, to confront the kingdoms of men who are hell-bent on crushing the image of God on earth. And that includes you, great-grandma. So while you suffer now, Mm. she suffered till she was, I think, 14 or 15 years old in slavery, and then the Civil War broke out. While you suffer now, you're 11 Mm. years old. You can't see. Mm. She was a breeder at 11 years old. Think about that, right? Um, while, you, while you suffer now, there will come a day yeah. when the king of the kingdom of God will have moved God's people mm. to stand up to yes. the empires and to say no. Mm. And that's what, that's what the, um, uh, um, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was all about. Yeah. That's what the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment was about. That's what the Civil War was about, Mm -hmm. um, ultimately. And so today we face, we're in a world where we have have the same same lies are at work, just in different ways. Mm -hmm. And it is the work and the calling of the church to stand up and say no. Please, mm. uh, I mean, there's so much that, I mean, I love all this so much. I mean, the, and, and to reframe it as having to go back to the Genesis story, having to reframe the whole problem. Yes. The, because what I'm, what I'm hearing in that then is, so sin is not an issue so much of God was upset because of our naughtiness, but this is about bringing us into right relationship with each other. Yes. Making these injustices, right? Bring us into right relationship with the creation itself. Yes. I'm wondering for you, though, um, because and I, that's so compelling when you describe that year of depression and the mm-hmm. bottom falling out. Because mm-hmm. I do believe, you know, like, before there's ever any sort of reorientation, I mean, like that mm-hmm. dark night of the soul, the disorientation, whatever, like, so, yeah. I feel like so many people kind of come, if they come to that place, and especially when, mm-hmm. for the first time, uh, maybe somebody's wrestling with the fact that their faith has been when people for the first time really might wake up in some form to how Christianity has been co-opted and used in these kind yeah, of oppressive yeah, ways. Yeah. For a lot of people, that's where the journey ends. For a lot of people, that's where they stop and say, like, I'm done. What was yeah. it in the midst of that time for you that made you feel like mm-hmm. that the Jesus story was one that you had to hang on to, even while some of the externals that you'd been taught from this more kind of evangelical establishment yeah. was passing away? Well, it's weird because I don't think, I, I, I mean, part of it is my own constitution. I'm not mm. somebody who gives up easily. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't. I'm, I mean, in some ways, and I think my whole family is like this. We're like bulldogs. We chump onto something and we don't let it go until mm. we know it's time to let it go. Um, so I think that part of it is that I'm a loyalist. I was loyal to Jesus. I was like, I'm mm. going to give this some tries. I'm going to try. But I think another piece of it was that when I began to ask questions about who were, who are the heroes of the faith today? Yeah. And even going back, who are they? When I learned that the abolitionist movement was spearheaded 
by black people who you never hear about right. who were evangelical. Yeah. Right? They were they actually had a saving faith. They went to the altar. Mm. They they believed in Jesus's power of resurrection to be resurrected, to move from death to life. They mm. believed in the transformative power of the cross, mm. not only to reform self but also to reform society. Yes. And it was it was those people, you know, people like Absalom Jones and um and um um uh James Fortin and um, and Allen, like all of these people, they were they were actually the spearheads of the yeah. Second Great Awakening, and it was their faith that actually launched that, and and also launched the suffrage movement. And the su- when I learned that the suffrage movement was actually catalyzed in the same space in Philadelphia, catalyzed by black women. Mm. Hello, somebody. In 1833, wow. uh, 15 years before Elizabeth Cady Stanton put on the women's suffrage meeting in, in Seneca Falls, New York, mm. 15 years before. That's extraordinary. And in partnership with Lucretia Mott, who mm. was at that 1848 um, meeting without any of her black sisters who actually helped form the, the, the women's empowerment movement. 15 years before. So when I learned that actually evangelical faith has been deeply, deeply influenced at its core in terms of what it really is yeah. by black folk mm-hmm. who were fighting slavery and fighting women's oppression. And that it's in that cauldron that the Second Great Awakening happened. And mm-hmm. the Second Great Awakening, therefore, had huge impact on the actual um, status of slave or free of of thousands of black people across the South who were yeah. set free by their masters because yeah. they came forward in Charles Finney's revivals, mm. which included women and mm. black women, particularly Sojourner Truth was a part of that, mm. a part of his revivals. He was She was on the circuit with him. Wow. I didn't know that. Most people Ooh. don't know that unless you do your research, yeah. right? So, yeah. and not to say that you should do, I'm just saying sure, that. Sure, sure. It's not taught. Yes. So when when we today look at what is being passed off as evangelicalism, yeah. it's actually literally not. It's mm. literally not evangelicalism. Mm. And and even when you look at the 20th century evangelicalism, it's actually not. It, it's not. Like yeah. when you look at, you can look at um, Billy Graham and Christianity Today and all of that. They are, they are a, like a, a twig on the tree yeah. of of evangelicalism. Yeah. Now, I mean, they are major institutions now sure. that have embedded evangelicalism in American society institutionally mm-hmm. and have shaped it now for the 20th century. But they do not come from the same lineage as those evangelicals. They yeah. just don't. Yeah. In fact, they come from a lineage. They sprung from the lineage of fundamentalists right. who were against, markedly against, Women's women's empowerment and suffrage. Yeah. They were against um, integration in the North and in the South. Of course, mm-hmm. during Jim Crow, they were for Jim Crow. Like mm-hmm. these are these are people. This is a stream of the faith that began out of fundamentalism in 1908, mm-hmm. and in that in that period, and grew. And in the middle of the civil rights movement, it's that stream, it's that that fundamentalist stream that actually. Um, influenced the PC, well, the creation of the PCA church later, mm. because it was those, those um, quote, evangelical churches that were at the spearhead of the segregationist movement. Yeah. 
And they were coming directly against the historic black church, which traces itself to directly, like don't pass go, directly to the Second Great Awakening. Yeah. So you had yeah. two streams of evangelicalism wow. fighting around the issues of race mm. in the 1960s. Mm. And one of them was black and the other was white. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at, when I say I'm an evangelical, yeah. what I'm saying is I hail back to that stream mm. that that formed the faith of Absalom Jones and yes. formed the faith of James Fortin and Philip Allen. I mean, that's that mm. is the stream that I hail back to, mm-hmm. and um, and Margareta Fortin and Sarah Fortin. These are the people who I look to, and I go, you know, they were they actually in their in in their theology and their ecclesiology. They actually had an evangelical faith yeah. in the church they went to. They were Episcopal. They were Quaker. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some, and some others who were also influential in that time were Methodist or others, right? But the reality is, is that that our faith, the evangelical faith that we now recognize as evangelical, mm-hmm. is would be an aberration yeah. to the ev- evangelicals of the 19th century. An aberration. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that I want to give up so quick on what I absolutely know to be true of my own faith, that I do believe in the cross. I do Mm -hmm. believe in the resurrection, Mm -hmm. the power of the resurrection for actual change. Absolutely. I do believe in the scripture. I Mm -hmm. actually really do. Mm -hmm. And I think the most of the reason why we don't anymore is that we do horrible work in the scripture right yes we don't yes. we don't we don't even preach out of the scripture anymore that's so true people just like quote a verse and then go off on other right. stuff right so right. but if you go deep that stuff is powerful Absolutely. like you know I mean, that stuff is talking directly and why hmm. because this scripture every single word of it was written by brown colonized people yeah yeah about their contexts mm. This is a book, I'm pointing now at my Bible, in case you guys don't know. Mm. Um, This is a book that was written as a freedom document. Mm. It's a book about liberation, about Mm. a a people struggling against colonization and Mm. empire the whole way through. Mm. Every single author of this text, every single one. Yeah was coming from a perspective where they were either colonized and trying to figure out where is God in all of this, Mm. or they were in danger of colonization, Mm. hence David and Solomon. They were kings, but not of an empire. Yeah. They were kings of a dinky little kingdom that kept getting sacked by empire. Mm. So I, I, um, I happily embrace the my identity as a Jesus follower mm. and I come from the evangelical tradition that believes in all those things I just yeah. talked about and the reason for that is because of the inherent and indigenous blackness of my faith mm. Mm. that's so powerful Lisa and it's like it's it's parallel so much of the things I've learned in my journey I mean is a fifth generation mm. Pentecostal because I feel like mm. a lot of a lot of what Pentecostalism now I mean you know it's taken on sort of by I don't know, uh, social location or whatever. A lot of Pentecostals now in North America will act like fundamentalists, but like, yeah, that's I mean, true. it's not a fundamentalist movement. I mean, it's, wow. it's radical. I mean, in every way. Really and true. I feel like when I kind of came to terms 
with the roots of my own history in that way. And it's what made me want to kind of reclaim that story and feel mm-hmm. like I've still got a place in it. Um, I know you're speaking like to this already, but I wanted to say the same thing we talked about just before we started, but that literally was my favorite thread ever on Twitter when a few months ago, because I have, I'm in this conversation <laughs> so much, because I am, of course, I'm deeply empathetic uh, because of the aberration and because the way Christian, of course, um, I understand why people are, disenchanted and disillusioned with a faith that often that oftentimes really has been handed to them uh, and that a lot of things that they have been taught a lot of things that have been seen I mean, a lot of even the the kind of things we're uh, trying to create a counter witness around it the red letter revival I mean that those mm-hmm. things are very real and out there so I understand where people especially when they've only experienced faith one way yeah. but it's it does make me laugh sometimes now though because I feel like a lot of times for folks it's like okay so I'm either going to go to a Southern Baptist mega church, right. or I'm going to be an atheist and burn it all down. I know. It's like, wait a minute. There's a lot in between that, folks. There's a right. whole lot. And did you ever really consider the fact that maybe the Southern Baptist thing, and not just yes. Southern Baptist, but honestly, white Christianity, period, yeah. is not actual Jesus. Yes. It's just not. Yes, yes. Here's, here's what I've been thinking recently, and it goes back to that thread you were talking yeah, yeah. about. It's that... How did it happen? Mm. Like, how? How did it happen mm. that we have the center of the locus of orthodoxy in the Christian faith? Yes. That, that the people who get to decide what this book means, yeah. that, the, that the ones we have attributed with the authority to make those decisions right. are all based in empires. Yes. Slave yes. trading nations or slave and inv- slavery investing nations. Yeah. And it was it was there in that location that all of a sudden we now vest because Luther mm. said it is so, it is so, yeah. because Calvin said it is yeah. so, it is so, because um so and so who who came from who walked around, you know, in in frills and fluff and mm-hmm. you know puff sleeves because he had puff sleeves he gets to say what what this thing means that's right no yeah. jesus never had a sleeve at all like right. you know what i mean like right. jesus didn't have sleeves yes jesus didn't wear didn't didn't live in a concrete building jesus mm-hmm. did not be he, he did not be <laughs> jesus did not rise from empire yes empire killed him yes empire yes. killed brown jesus mm. empire colonized his people. Mm. Empire killed and colonized every single writer of this text. Yeah. Every writer. Yeah. So who do you, who do they think they are mm. to have the authority to to interpret, mm. to have the last word yeah. on the text of brown colonized people? Yeah. Who do they think they are? Yeah. And who are we to give them that authority? Mm-hmm. So that's what I've mm-hmm. I think I've really come to the place where I revoke that authority. Yeah. Oh hell mm-hmm. no, 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 no. You mm-hmm. don't get to have that authority. Mm-hmm. I am only giving that authority now to people who themselves have experienced yes. colonization. Yes. And in particular, brown people who have experienced colonization because they live in a social location. Yeah. Social, not geographic, but social location mm-hmm. that is closer to the writers of all of the texts in the Bible right. than anyone we've given right. authority to interpret it to. Mm. Oh, that's so important. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? I do. I do. Yeah. And and just because I want I want people to hear that point so clearly, what you, what you were saying then in that thread is that then when people 
decide in the name of being woke, socially conscious, whatever, that they need to walk away from that brown skin Jesus. Right. That's what the thing is. When you say that you're not Christian anymore, what you're really saying, because the truth is that he was brown, not that he was white. When you say, oh, I'm race, Christianity is racist. Mm. What you're saying when you do that is you are erasing the truth Mm. that Christianity actually is black. Mm. And by blackness, I don't mean the color black. I mean politically black. Mm. I mean Christianity rose from the very bottom of the social location. Christianity rose from a brown, indigenous, colonized people. Mm. So when you say, I'm leaving Christianity because it's full of white race, or it is a white racist faith, What you've just done is you have proven how very tied to white supremacy you are. Yeah. Yeah. What you've just done is you have you have in that one sentence and your action, you have minimized Mm -hmm. the importance, or even maybe even better yet, erased the possibility. Mm. that Christianity is not that. Mm. Christianity, in its, and by Christianity, what I mean is Jesus following, yeah. those who follow Jesus, yeah. is not a white faith. It's just really not. Yes. yes. Now, people will say, but it's become a white faith. Well, it has become practiced and adopted and appropriated, and I would actually argue um, corrupted. Mm by empire. Mm. And uh, you know, in, ta- in some conversations with some scholars, um, someone explained to me, actually, it's, it's the moment that it became, it was placed in the hands of Constantine. Mm. This is when that corruption really set in. And you can even see it, and they even, I mean, they brought it to the place um, of the Nicene Creed, that the yeah. Nicene Creed itself, mm. um, there was a, like there was a council that was brought together um, by Constantine. And that council um, was the council to decide what's going to go in and what's going to go out. What do we believe? What do we not believe? And they argued between themselves. And um, and there were people who were brown and colonized who were arguing for this and that. And there were people who were not who were arguing for this and that. Mm. And ultimately, it was empire. It was Constantine, mm. the king of an empire, of the empire, mm. who came in and said, this stays, this goes. Mm. So even the creed yeah. itself was colonized. Wow, yeah. The creed mm. was colonized. So, I mean, I wow. just think that, yes. Because well, for all of it, so it makes so much sense, because for all of its elegance, I mean, the Nicene Creed is, I mean, it's just that, it's that, great, that can't be the heart. It's not everything. It's very cerebral, and, and it's, it's like, that, that, that doesn't sound like something you would have heard in the first two to three centuries. All the things that are beautiful about it, but that's not. It's not something you would hear from a colonized people who are fighting yeah. for their survival. Yeah. They're not going to sit down and talk about, we believe, da, 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 da. no. Yes. They're going to talk about, what is Jesus? What mm-hmm. does Jesus have to say about the fact that the year that he was born, mm. 2,000 people were crucified in Northern Galilee in the area where he was born. In the year he was born, in the area where he was born, 2,000 people, men and boys, Mm. were crucified in one day. One day. Because they attempted to overthrow Rome. Mm. Empire. Mm. I want to know 
what does Jesus have to say to that? Mm. I want to know, when we talk about the Nicene Creed, what does the Nicene Creed have to say to that? Yeah. Because the very first sermon Jesus ever gave, ever, mm-hmm. his first words, his first public words were, I have been anointed to preach good news to the, to the oppressed. Yes, yes. His first words, mm. his first public sermon mm. in that context. Right. So the Nicene Creed is great. I'm okay with it. Sure, I'm good. Sure. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, look, I'm not saying anything is wrong with it. Right. What I'm saying is Empire approved it. Yes. And didn't approve other things. Mm-hmm. I want to know what didn't they approve? Mm. And also, it's actually not the biblical text. I yeah. really want to know what's the story of the text. Yeah. That's where we find the truth. Mm. Lisa, I just love, I feel like. You know, I mean, for all the voices that have influenced, I feel like you, you, I just feel like you speak with more clarity and precision on this than anybody I know, because it just, it just, it just, it just just names for me so well. And again, I always say this, I want to give all the disclaimers because with plenty of grace for where anybody is in their journey, Mm -hmm. but it just, it just makes so much sense of how when people often leave a certain kind of fundamentalism, Mm -hmm. that while they reject that belief system and value system altogether, that they take on the character of something that feels actually really identical. Because one of the things I started to see yes. is finding these people with, I'm like, okay, I, I, I like where I like wh- how you think now you're, in terms of you're more inclusive about this or that, or you have a, on refugees and fill in the blank, plenty of things that's, that seem more healthy. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's so white. It's so white. It's still Equally so white, white. sometimes more white. And yes. it's like, and, and I don't think anything else explains this except for that. How is it possible, you know, that, that there's something that it is actually a product in and of itself of a kind of white privilege and even, as you said, a kind of white supremacy to reject a very brown Jesus? I mean, I think that when it comes down to it, the real, the thing what we have to really understand. I, um, a while ago, I was asked, you know, we were talking about the it was this year, I believe, was the 500 year, maybe it was last year, 500 years um, after the Reform, Reformation. Mm. And um, I think it was earlier this year that they asked me this, like, what would you say for the next 500 years? And and it hit me. Okay, so what's the project for the next 500 years? Yeah. The project for the next 500 years is for the whole church to recognize that it has it has made Jesus in the image of white men mm. and to decolonize Jesus, mm. to decolonize wow. the Bible, yeah. to decolonize the church, mm. to decolonize our faith. That's the project of the next 500 years, yeah. I believe. Because there's no way that we can save ourselves, our church, and our nations. Yes. Without that, because mm. our nations, by and large, have grown up around the lie mm. of the whiteness of Scripture mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. therefore the whiteness of humanity. Mm-hmm. That hum- to be fully human is to be white. Yeah. And, and, and so when, they, when, when the, your friends or when, you know, people who are leaving the church or leaving Christianity, when they do that and they, they do that and they say, they think to themselves, I'm rejecting Christianity because it's so white. Actually, what they're rejecting is something I think we all need to reject. Yeah. Whiteness. Yeah. But because 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 what we're actually living in and worshiping in is not Christianity. Yes. It's whiteness. Yes. It's whiteness. 
It's whiteness with a hem. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. whiteness with a frock. Mm-hmm. Whiteness with a with a with a bulletin. It's whiteness, mm-hmm. and that's the reason. Interestingly enough, you know, they what when they leave and they say we're we're leaving Christianity and actually they're they're being turned off by whiteness but they haven't said it they haven't spoken it they haven't faced that whiteness mm-hmm. so they actually end up carrying it with them yeah which goes back to what you were saying yeah oh that's uh, that's so important lisa what do you um and maybe just i mean we've talked about some of these things on the podcast before but maybe for people who are newer to the journey even when you talk about whiteness can you say a bit more about that in what terms do I of mean what you by mean that? Yeah. about whiteness so whiteness is not somebody's skin color, y'all. That's one thing, is that it has nothing to do with skin color. Um, it, it's, it's Whiteness is literally a political construct. And by political, what I mean is it was, a, it was something constructed in America, literally, judicially, um, through the courts and then through the legislatures, um, starting in the 18, sorry, the 1660s, 1650s, and then moving all the way to present. But in 1656, a woman, a young African-American woman who was biracial, actually, she she took her case to court in order to fight for her freedom. She was in Virginia. Her name was Elizabeth Key. And when Elizabeth Key went into the courtroom, um, she said, according to Virginia law, at the time, it was a colony of England, and so it followed English common law. And according to English common law, the status of citizenship um, followed the status of the father. Whatever the father was would become the status of the child. Mm. And another piece of British law was that a British citizen could not be enslaved. Mm. You can't enslave a British citizen. And then a third piece of that was you can't enslave another Christian. Okay. Right. So all three of those points. Well, her dad was a British citizen who had her baptized almost immediately after she was born. Mm-hmm. And um, she, so she was a British citizen mm-hmm. because her dad was a British citizen. So she took that to court and won her freedom. Mm-hmm. And then others who had, who had been the product of rapes of, of um, English men who were raping their enslaved women, mm-hmm. their, their children rose up and said, wait a minute, I'm baptized. My dad is an English citizen. I shouldn't be. I'm a British citizen then. And so then I should not be enslaved. And they won. Mm. So in 1662, the um, House of Burgesses, which is the legislature in Virginia, they got hip to this and they realized, uh, we need to change this. Mm. So they did. They changed it to the Roman law of partis, which places the status of the child wherever the mother's status is. They shifted it from the father to the mother. And hence, race was born. Mm. So in that moment, what ended up happening was a hierarchy that was based mm. on race. And only a person, if a mother, it was the mother who was always going to be the slave yeah. because it was the mother who actually, if, if the father was raping a black woman, then that black woman mm-hmm. was going to be enslaved. Mm-hmm. She was a slave. And all of her children in perpetuity then would also be enslaved. Yeah. So now you have blackness associated in it now with enslavement mm. where it hadn't been before. Mm. And so, and then Merida followed, Mer- Mer- Maryland followed suit, North Carolina, South Carolina, mm. you know, Kentucky later. Basically, it just went out from there. And um, so racialized hier- hierarchy mm. began at that time. Um, when we talk about whiteness, um, 
whiteness was conceived to be the full human being. Mm. When you can even go back further than just American history, when you go back to Plato and mm. Aristotle, Plato said race, he was first person in Western culture that I know of that talked about and tried to pontificate on what race is. Mm. And he said that race is different metals different people groups are made of. Mm. And that metal, whatever metal they're made of, gold, silver, copper, iron, it determines how they will serve society. Wow. Well, 10 years later, one of his students, Aristotle, came along and he wrote a, um, a letter called On Interpretation. And in that letter, he talked about Western supremacy. So now you get mm. the first hier like hierarchical experience here of race. And he, scholars believe that he would have said that, um, what does it mean to be fully human? It means to be European, Western, mm. white, and male, mm. and able-bodied. So if you are, if wow. you are those three things, you're fully human. If you yeah. are less than those three things, you are less than human, according mm. to Aristotle. Mm. And that would have been core to his belief system. And so it's from there that our construct of race then moved from philosophy to theology mm. to science, and then finally to law. And it's in the law that we finally see, in the structures that we built in the first Congress of America in 1790, the very first census only had one race, white. Mm. So we talk about centering whiteness. Yeah. Our whole national construct is centered around whiteness. Mm. There was no other race on the entire census. Mm -hmm. And the other one, the other thing that was mentioned was slave, slave or free, right? but no color. Hmm. So when we talk about whiteness, we're talking about a political construct that was, it was devised to determine one thing. Who was called by God to exercise dominion hmm. on land? Hmm. That's it. Well. And blackness was a construct created in direct opposition to whiteness hmm. to determine who is not. Hmm who is not called by God mm. to exercise dominion. And in fact, who was created to be controlled and confined and used in order to make white dominion possible. Mm. Well, That's what blackness well. was created to define. And then everything in between, um, all the other, quote, races that were crafted they are, they are crafted also to determine something in relationship to whiteness. Yeah. So Asian American, um, Latino Americans, mm. um, they, have, they have been, because the center has been whiteness, mm -hmm. they have been defined through the white lens, mm. through what white people believe they can actually, how they, they can relate to them. Mm. So for Latinos... Um, they are they are mestizaje. They are mixed with everything, mm. um, mixed with Spanish, which is white, it's European, mixed with um, uh, Native American, and mixed with African. Mm. And so, when they are dark enough, they are thought to be laborers for the for the benefit of white capitalism, mm. of capitalism that benefits white people. And when they are lighter, then they are thought to be imminent threats mm. that must be kept out of our borders. Um, for Asian Americans, they are perpetual foreigners and perpetual foreign threats because that is how the white gaze 
sees them. Mm. So they're always put on the margins, always excluded. But you see, we don't have to live according to those lies. We can actually choose the truth, the truth that we are all, all of us made in the image of God. Mm. All of us called by God to Mm -hmm. exercise dominion in the world, Mm -hmm. to to steward the world. Um, And by the way, that also includes Native Americans Mm -hmm. who in that white gaze that because whiteness is centered, it matters how they see the people. And in that white gaze, Native Americans are seen as not only less than human, but not human. They're seen Mm -hmm. as savage, Mm -hmm. as animals that must be exterminated. Mm. Yes. So we can we can we can choose. We can choose to cleanse our eyes. Yeah. We can choose another way of seeing and being in the world. Mm. And I think that that starts with how we see the image of God in each other. Mm. Yeah. Um Paul, I'm going to talk about this tonight, actually, at the at the revival in my five minutes that we get. Right. So, <laughs> the whole five oh, minutes. Five, yeah. <laughs> man, I've already taken about 50 here. So. I know, right? I don't want to say yeah. alone in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like, seriously. Uh, you can't do that to a black person. It's like, we just we just have too much to talk about. So, um, but yeah, I know my little five minutes, I'm going to talk about baptism. Wow. And baptism for us as in the Christian faith, as being the symbol, even in the scripture, of the equalizer, mm. because baptism, what it does, I believe in Paul talks about this in Galatians 3, 27 to 29, where he says that if you are in Jesus, if yeah. you are in brown Jesus, yeah. if you are in the faith of the brown colonized king of the kingdom of God, mm. then when you go under the water, mm. the water cleanses your eyes, your lenses, well of the lenses of empire, where you see everyone and everything according to the hierarchies of human belonging. But when you come up out of that water, Mm. you only see the image of God in the other. Mm. And what that means is that you see their call to exercise dominion in the world. And instead of, of just trying to get yours, or even instead of helping a bunch of white people and being okay with brown people suffering. Yeah. No. You want the image of God to flourish everywhere. Yeah. And that includes in that brown woman or man or transgender woman mm-hmm. or man because the image of God is in all. Yes. And so wherever we wherever we are okay with the image of God suffering, with the image of God being crushed, mm. wherever that is true, we are actually we are declaring war on God. Mm. Wow. We're wow. declaring war on God. Mm. Or at the very least, we're okay with the image of God being crushed. Yes. And yes. that means you're not a friend of God. Yeah. So don't even mm. think about like, um, singing that worship song. Don't mm-hmm. sing that worship song. Don't mm-hmm. embarrass yourself. Mm. You're not a friend of God mm. if you're okay with the image of God being crushed. Yeah. Wow. Oh. That's such a strong and powerful word, Lisa. What you know, you you've written you've written and spoken so transparently about your own journey in terms of I don't know, just decolonizing. And I think um, especially when people are first coming to sort of see this whole 
matrix and start to see how much this truly is everywhere. It's almost the air that you breathe. I mean, it's just, you know, some of it is consciously chosen, but a lot of things are not chosen. I mean, these, all these assumptions or whatever. And I think like, you know, I just feel like I'm talking to a lot of people right now who are, are on a journey, but legitimately are frightened because when you first are starting to see yeah. the depth of it, the scope of it, you know, not just in the world, but in yourself and like, mm-hmm. It feels like an infinite amount of things that you, um, infinite need for repentance and need for growth. and all that. But what would you say for people maybe who are kind of newer to that journey and just trying to figure out what it looks like to repent, trying to figure out what it looks like to, to, to decolonize? Yeah. Like, where do you Where do you go? Where How do you do, you do this? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, my book, The Very Good Gospel, we were talking about this in the last session that I was in. I was um, leading... Um, chapter nine deals with shalom and race. Mm. And at the end of chapter nine, there's actually several different um, guidelines or, or things that you can do, ways that you can step into the waters of mm. decolonizing, de- decolonization. And I mean, I think that the very first thing is actually is very simple. You can go online and you can mm. literally take the Harvard Implicit um, Association test. Oh, yeah. That's it. So practical. Mm. Easy and free. Yeah. So there is no excuse for people mm-hmm. not to be aware. And what they say is that there's no way for us to actually move forward until we... Mm. It's like you can't go to the doctor and just say to the doctor, I want surgery for cancer. Yeah. <laughs> How do you know that you have cancer? You could have rickets. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Who knows? You don't know what you have. You know, yeah. you got to do an assessment. Yes. So you have to do, do the assessment. Do that Harvard Implicit Association test. Implicit bias is simply unconscious bias. Mm. And what that test does is it makes us aware of the level and the depth of unconscious bias that is at work within us. It's not perfect, but it's also very, very, I mean, it's very helpful. And very. it is actually highly accurate. Mm. And the way that it works, people will get totally mad at the test, right? Because it's going to send up all these like stereotypical images. And you're like, this thing is trying to trick me. This thing is, Mm. no, it's not. What it's trying to do is it's trying to test how long does it take you to actually get over the pictures that it's putting in your, in your, in your Mm. purview, in your, in your face in the midst of this test. Because the theory is as if it takes you a shorter amount of time to get over the stereotypes that they're planting in your head, Mm -hmm. then it means that you probably have fewer of those stereotypes already in there. But if it takes you a longer amount of time to kind of, get past those things, then it's probably true that you have more already in there to fish through. I see. You know, so that's the theory. Yeah. So I would take that test, number one. Number two, I would do everything I could to immerse myself first in the stories of the other. Mm. In the stories, particularly because this racial construct that we have in America was built on a black-white continuum. Mm -hmm. What I would do is I would do all that I could to immerse myself in the stories of the African-American experience. And also I would add the Native American experience. Mm -hmm. So Native Americans have been largely erased from the story altogether, Mm -hmm. and isn't that convenient, right? That means we don't have to deal with the fact that we're living on their land. But it's more than that. It's actually, I think that that story, it clarifies the question of colonization. How did mm. we do it? What does it look like? Mm. So if you just focus on those stories, and I'll give you one book that would be really great to start with, D. Brown's um, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Mm. That really was one of my beginning okay. like books. I read that book, and I didn't let myself go to the next chapter until I had 
really taking in what had just happened mm. in the last one. Mm. So it took me a while to get through that book, but I finally did. And it, it changed. It, um, I think what it did is it began to open my eyes to the world that we live within. Yeah. And the reality of what happened before on the land that I'm standing on now. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that you could do is to to watch a bunch of movies and documentaries. Yeah. Any documentary re- um, uh, produced by Henry Louis Gates is a good oh, documentary sure. mm-hmm. to, to watch. Yeah. Because he's so good at bringing out the histories, the histories that we don't normally know. Yeah. Right. And the stories of others. So I would recommend that. Um, and then I would actually recommend immersing not just in the story, but among the people mm. and in the people's stories. Mm-hmm. So pilgrimage is a powerful way to do that. Freedom Road, the organization that I founded and run, that's one of our, our main things. The things we love to do is to take people, groups, on pilgrimage um, through the stories of the other. Mm. Um, so pilgrimage is a, it's one of the most powerful ways to have to move your group through a worldview shift yeah. because your group that you're bringing on this pilgrimage is having a, a similar experience. They can wrestle through mm-hmm. together and they are being displaced. It's voluntary displacement, actually, where you as a person of European descent in particular, but not only European. I mean, all of us have been shaped by these narratives to some degree. You're voluntarily taking yourself out of the center yeah. and centering yeah. the stories of the other. Freedom Road, for people who would be interested in those pilgrimages, the best way to connect online through the website? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So the best way, well, there's there's actually several ways, but one is through the website. So if you ever want to um, check out what we do, just go to freedomroad.us, um, and you can contact us through the contact page. Easy. We get it. We respond quickly. Okay. Um, and then also, we do do these pilgrimages, and you can actually inquire about the pilgrimages there. And we usually the best way to do it is to contract us to do a pilgrimage for your group. That's the best way because other than that, we don't have we have one that we do every year for women, okay. and then we have another that's like on again, off again. We're not really sure when we're doing it, but we mostly do it for Greenville University, and we invite awesome. others. But the best way is to say our church or our group wants to do a pilgrimage. Can you work with us? Um, and then we also do training and consulting and coaching as well. Um, and we have a podcast. That's awesome. That's <laughs> so awesome. the Freedom Road podcast is another really great way to continue to you know keep plugged in. Definitely. Um, what, Lisa, would you say? Because I, I, I want to honor your time. Because we, well, we've got our three o'clock thing coming up. Even. <laughs> To be at something like, and I'm so, thank thank you for sharing that information. I just feel like you're, the work you're doing, and I, I'm eager to do one myself. I'm serious about following up there because okay. I really want to go. All right. Um, but just to, this whole conversation and even, you know, today you've been talking about liberating evangelicalism. And I feel like the very even backdrop of the Red Letter Revival of this sort of, uh, to. I mean, I know different people have feelings about the word, but in a sense, contending for evangelicalism, certainly contending for Christian in some cases. I'm just curious in terms of just um, what you're seeing and what you're experiencing, specifically in a North American context right now, knowing that that's not all there is. But yeah. with everything that's happening politically, and like what, you, what brings you hope right now in the midst of a lot of things that obviously mm-hmm. are not hopeful but what are you seeing that does that does energize you where are you seeing the holy spirit at work i'll tell you what i the thing that really has given me the most hope recently 
was the conference for liberating evangelicalism. Mm. There was a liberating evangelicalism conference in Chicago, and it was put on by Evangelicals for Justice, which is actually a woman-led, mostly women of color, um, uh, movement, really. Um, but it's not its not only women, but the leadership, the core leadership has been women since the very beginning. Mm. Um, and we started a decade ago. And um, Soon Chan Ra is a part of it. And, mm. you know, Peter Heltzel and myself and, and um, uh, Mae Cannon and, um, and Andrea Smith. I mean, there's like a, a bunch of amazing theologians, really, yeah. who are at the center of that, but have been lifting up theologians of color in particular. Mm. And so at this Liberating Evangelicalism Conference, it's stripped away all of the trappings, excuse me, the trappings of whiteness. And so in many ways, decolonized the space. We didn't even really know how to interact with it in it in the first session. It was really interesting. And it felt a little uncomfortable. Mm. Like there were no bright lights. There were mm. no black curtains that hid the back of the stage. Mm. It was just a platform and a mic and, you know, a podium. We had a podium too. And we joked about how that podium was very colonizing, but, (laughs) you know, but, but it did help. You got to put your laptop on it. (laughs) But I, I think that the thing that was, um, that was really most amazing about it is that from up front, at least for Mm. me, from up front, all of the speakers were all people of color. Mm. So it offered an audience that was majority people of color hmm. and about 40 something percent white okay the ability to be immersed wow yeah it offered the ability for theological immersion mm-hmm. in conversations that were not centering whiteness mm-hmm. and in fact um really gave space for people of color um, theologians of color practitioners of color to to say what they think not yeah. in relationship with no reference yeah. to white authorities mm. and therefore start another whole conversation. Mm. So that's part of the problem, I think, really, yeah. with, um, I think part of the problem with like even the even the question, am I evangelical or am I not evangelical? Mm-hmm. It's like, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, because the reality is the evangelical movement is a European movement. So sure. whatever. Like, yeah. it's like, you know, I'm not sure ultimately in the long run that I want to land identifying myself or saying that others should identify themselves and craft the boundaries of their faith around what some Europeans figured out 400 years ago. Like, I'm not really sure. I really want to do that. I'm honest about my faith and where it has sprung from. It does spring from that movement. But I also am in the process, and I think that in that space, I found others in the process Mm. of... Stripping past all that, mm. trying to see and connect with and hear from Brown Jesus. Mm. And that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. It hasn't, it is, it is had without reference mm. to the Reformation mm. or to Catholicism or to the Nicene Creed, even, yeah. or to it is a conversation about what it looks like to follow brown colonized indigenous Jesus. Mm. Mm. And I really do believe that's where we're going. And I have hope wherever I see that happening. Yeah, That's so good, Lisa. And it's so helpful too, because I feel like, you know, 
am I, I am having the sense more and more. It's like that the very the very moment that you even start to answer certain kind of questions, you know, when you accept the premise of the question. Right. And whoever sets the language right. sets the debate. So even if you go to the other side of it, even if you argue with it, you're still operating within the confines of that structure and feeling like yes. surely what God is doing now is something that uh, where we need to be broken out of the structure altogether yes. and stop even, okay, done with that conversation. Exactly. We don't even have the argument anymore. Don't I'm even done. have this debate. You know? Done with that. Done with that. Moving past that yeah. because the more that we do that the more we center whiteness yeah. that's all yeah. it's all conversations happened mm. in a context where whiteness was centered mm-hmm. what happens when we decenter whiteness we see everything mm. differently and we see things we never saw before yeah yeah thank you lisa i know um, I wish we could do this all day. No, we do ever <laughs> such, I would I love know, it, and you really can take this in whatever ahead. direction that you uh, that you want to go. But if if you don't mind, I would love it if you would pray for us because I just feel like you know you're Absolutely. talking on things about things that are stirring up a lot of things in people, and you know just anything to pray even into our own kind of liberation and coming to see this Jesus. I just I, I don't want to steer it. Just however you feel like God would lead you, I would love for you to okay just direct right. us. Let's pray. Holy God, holy, holy, holy God. Brown Jesus, save us. Amen. Amen. Lisa Sharon Harper, what and what an hour this has been! <laughs> an immediate favorite of one of any of these conversations I've had so far. This has been oh. awesome. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Jonathan. And thank you guys for joining us for another episode of the Zeitcast. I will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.